This is Physician to Physician Plant-Based Nutrition. I'm Tracy Cushing, an emergency medicine physician. I'm also a mom, a wife, four-time Ironman, and I've been plant-based for 11 years. And I'm Eden English. I'm an internal medicine physician, a hiker, a ski boarder, a mom, and I've been vegan for the last five years. We're passionate about helping other doctors learn the science behind plant-based eating so they can help their patients develop sustainable, healthy eating habits. Each episode, we're breaking down the science behind plant-based eating and answering the questions we know most doctors have and most patients ask. Eden, what did you have for dinner last night? Hey, Tracy. Last night we had poke bowls for dinner. I love these and we've been doing them a lot lately. My husband makes them for us at home. Uh, we use short grain brown rice. He makes a seaweed salad, super easy to make with dried seaweed. Um, and you just soak that in rice vinegar. We have mangoes on it, tofu, edamame, cucumbers, tomatoes, pepitas, chia seeds. You can add all kinds of stuff to it. We usually top it with a little soy sauce and a little sesame oil. Really healthful, really wonderful meal. We've been making these at home, but they also have lots of fast food places that make these, which is a pretty nice fast food option. So Code Pokey is one that's local in Denver. There's lots of them around. Um, so we've been digging Pokey Bowls, and that's what I had last night. What about you, Tracy? I had a very uninspired dinner last night. I wandered into my pantry and I grabbed some chickpea pasta and a jar of red sauce and a little bit of vegan Parmesan and made myself a nice bowl of comfort rigatoni. But I really want to know what our guest had for dinner last night. And our guest today is Dr. Ali Saad. He is a board-certified stroke neurologist living in Denver, Colorado, practicing for over 10 years. He is currently a fellow in climate and health science policy at the University of Colorado, as well as a healthcare without harm climate and health fellow. His fellowship focus is updating medical society guidelines to encourage whole food plant forward eating. This diet is an impactful intervention for the prevention and reversal of most chronic diseases and significantly reduces carbon emissions in our food system. Having neurologists unified on nutrition's role in brain health is key to implementing dietary changes in hospital systems and in influencing federal agencies' guidelines on nutrition and reimbursement of dietary interventions. Dr. Saad also has experience in medical education, telemedicine, medical legal consulting, and is currently studying for the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Saad. And what did you have for dinner last night? Thank you for having me, uh, Tracy and Eden. It's great to be here. Um, so last night I had a friend over who helped me cook a dump and go, uh, instant pot recipe. So it was a, uh, Thai sweet potato soup. It had of course, sweet potatoes, but also red lentils, um, ginger, garlic, uh, tomatoes, uh, some spices, um, and then some coconut milk. And you just chop it all up, dump it all in, cook it, and then uh, blend it in with some, uh, coconut sugar and lime afterwards. And it's just a nice, um, warm winter soup that's, you know, got the lentils in there. So it's got protein and it's, it's very filling. You don't need any rice or bread or anything with it. Neurology and diet, not two things that we typically put in the same sentence, right? For most folks, we're familiar with heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, but you're going to educate us on how our diet affects our brain, which is arguably our most important organ, I would say. So, um, before we delve into the science, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal vegan journey, how you came to be plant-based, and what sort of turned you on this path to begin with? Yeah, sure. So um, 
you know, I've always been interested in just eating healthier, whatever that happened to mean at the time. And uh, that I've been gradually gravitating towards eating more whole foods, eating more plant-based food. Um, and I would be vegan on and off over the years, uh, but then I would regress due to, you know, getting bored, losing weight, or just thinking, you know what, if I have a little bit of fish, a little bit of cheese or whatever, it's not a big deal with regard to planetary health or personal health. But what ended up making me go fully vegan about two years ago was, you know, I didn't watch a very graphic documentary because I've seen all the documentaries, but I watched my octopus teacher and I don't know what it was about it. It's just seeing that octopus as an individual um, made me re-examine uh, why I wanted to be vegan. So yes, I still wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be a good steward of the planet, but now I do it primarily as an ethical vegan. And so if I, I don't even crave cheese or fish or whatever it is anymore, because I know the, the ethical cost um, of doing that. So I haven't really found myself um, going back. That's, you know, how it's been on a personal level. And from a, you know, on a professional level, I just want to practice what I preach when I'm uh, talking to my patients and to medical students and residents. Um, I want to model what I feel is the best diet and I, what I think the evidence supports as the best diet. And, you know, like you said, it's not something we commonly think of with regard to neurological disease, but the two most common neurological diseases for the WHO, both in, in the US and globally, are uh, dementia and stroke. And those two things are heavily influenced by lifestyle, diet being one of those major components. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I'm going to have the opportunity to talk about those. Let's get to the science of neurology and diets. So tell us about dementia. Um, seems like it's a big global and US problem. And what can we do in our lifestyle to maybe? stave off dementia. Yeah, awesome. So uh, before I get into the specific diseases, and I'll start with dementia, um, I just want to make two uh, key points. So the first key point is the idea of common mechanisms. Um, and when it comes to neurological diseases, two of the main ways that plant-based diets are helpful in neurological disease are largely through the prevention of atherosclerosis and metabolic syndrome, which in turn leads to microinfarcts and inflammation in the brain, similar to any other organ. So, you know, there isn't a lot of neuro disease specific pathways and mechanisms. Um, a lot of what uh, has been studied in the brain has been extrapolated from the heart and then uh, reproduced um, and studies around the brain. And then the second point is embracing the concept of good baseline brain health. You know, when we're talking about dementia and stroke, there's a lot of overlap with the risk factors. And if you were to um, have another neurological condition like Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or migraines or epilepsy or some genetic syndrome, having good baseline brain health where you don't have a lot of microinfarcts, where you don't have some mild cognitive impairment um, is really important so that you're resilient to new neurological insults and other neurological diseases. So you might have, uh, you guys might have heard of this when speaking to other neurologists or reading their notes, but they'll use this, this term that I really hate. Uh, the idea of a poor substrate or a poor protoplasm, which I think is kind of nonspecific, but I think it's a good concept because basically what it's saying is, oh, this person is a little bit delirious in the hospital because they're older and they've got some atrophy or they're maybe not that old, but they've got a lot of chronic microvascular disease on their brain imaging. And so they're going to be more susceptible to a new metabolic stressor. And so even though, even if you were, you know, 
someone has a disease that where there isn't a lot of dietary data because um, cognitive impairment and, and stroke are just so prevalent, it's important to reduce your burden of, uh, of having injury to predispose you towards those diseases anyway, just so it doesn't exacerbate any other neurological condition you may have. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, super important. Um, I think we all recognize how so many of our lifestyle choices underlie almost all disease states, um, which is why that's where we need to start if we're going to improve our health. One more thing I just want to sort of say is when we keep talking about different disease states, and we'll keep doing this throughout the season, but every disease state, the most recommended diet is really a plant-forward one, if not a fully vegan one. And that, you know, I'll jump in here if I'm saying anything that's wrong, but these diets are all the same. It's not like you need one diet to prevent stroke and one diet to prevent heart disease and a different one to prevent diabetes. A whole food plant-based diet is the right answer to reduce your risk for all these diseases. And we're seeing the same thing with dementia and everything else we're going to talk about today. So it's just, it keeps coming back to me that we don't need to preach different diets for different diseases. We need to preach a plant four diet across the spectrum and will reduce our risk of tons of things. Totally. Thank you for that, Eden. And there are specific diets that have been shown to reduce stroke risk, for example, but um, they all have the same themes um, as you were referring to. So yeah, let's let's get into it and let's start with Alzheimer's. So just very briefly as a pathophys uh, review, uh, Alzheimer's is due to the overproduction and the reduced clearance of uh, beta amyloid protein extracellularly and tau protein intracellularly. We have strong evidence that um, there is correlation with uh, developing these proteins uh, in excess and having reduced clearance with lifestyle risk factors, but how exactly these lifestyle risk factors interplay uh, to cause Alzheimer's and other dementias is, uh, is not totally clear. And my takeaway with regard to Alzheimer's is that a huge chunk of it is actually preventable. So what percentage of dementia burden in the U.S. do you guys think is preventable due uh, through lifestyle? And that's, you know, all dementias lumped together. I would have guessed something around 20 yeah, so or 30. No, it's, it's, almost, it's pretty much there. It's uh, 40%. And that's from a 2022 uh, study that I'll cite. Um, so yeah, in the U.S., about 40% of dementia overall is due to uh, 12 key risk factors. This is from a cross-sectional study of five nationally representative samples of U.S. adults. It was around 16,000 patients. And uh, those risk factors are low education, hearing loss, traumatic brain injury, hypertension, excessive alcohol consumption, obesity smoking, depression, social isolation, physical inactivity, diabetes, and air pollution. And all of these individual risk factors had pretty narrow confidence intervals uh, with hazard ratios between one and two. And even though I mentioned a lot of risk factors, in terms of the greatest, greatest attributable risk, the top three were hypertension, obesity, and low physical activity, which of course are heavily tied um, to diet. But all the other stuff is important too. I found it interesting, though, that they didn't include diet specifically as one of those risk factors, right? Like tobacco and alcohol and all of these other things. And yes, diet underlies some of these diseases, but I found it to be sort of a notable absence in risk factors. Um, and I also thought it was interesting mm -hmm. the way they carved them up by age group, such that 
Tobacco was seen as a later um, use uh, for higher risk, which most people start smoking, I feel like, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And same with alcohol. They made that a disease of older adults. I'm like, geez, not from what I'm seeing in the ER. Um, so I just thought it was yeah. in, it was interesting. And that diet was not one of the variables that they specifically looked at. And we all know that it underlies many of those others, as you say. I was going to say, I thought it was interesting, too, that the difference in risk factors when you looked at it globally versus the U.S. population, the biggest global risk factors were decreased hearing, decreased education and smoking. But in the U.S., we had squarely those three that you said, hypertension, midlife obesity, and late life physical inactivity, just indicating that once you're exposed to the Western diet and have that in abundance, it really becomes the biggest risk to your health that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, And there is that trend of, you know, the Western lifestyle, the Western diet kind of skewing you towards those dietary um, risk factors being more at play. Um, but, you know, what Tracy said about the alcohol is totally right. And, and studying from my lifestyle medicine boards, they were talking about there's a whole alcohol chapter and um, it's more likely for you to uh, have alcohol abuse uh, disorder if you're on the younger side. Um, also, if you if you have money, you're more likely to abuse it. Um, and then with regard to these studies about, you know, citing all this stuff in uh, middle age or like midlife and then how it impacts you in later life, I think that's a limitation of some of the dementia and Alzheimer's studies because they tend to study these people who come and say, hey, I want to be in a clinical trial. I'm concerned that I might get cognitive impairment because it runs in my family or they'll recruit people who have these risk factors. So I think they're just not studying people at a young enough age. And then a limitation with any nutritional study or lifestyle study is just following people over a long period of time. So it's going to be easier to start following them in midlife or later life. And then, you know, when you're looking at some smaller studies that focus more on the individual risk factors, um, again, the uh, hazard ratios are going to be somewhere between one and three for individual things like obesity or type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Um, And again, they're studying them mostly in uh, midlife and then examining how people uh, start to manifest their cognitive impairment over the next few years. You know, these studies that I looked at, they're, they're not these out there studies. They, they're from up to date and they're in major journals. And you can find them in the dietary and risk factor section uh, when you're looking up Alzheimer's on up to date. So the data is there. It's just not really featured. We also know that from two major cohorts uh, in, in the dementia research called the ERIC and uh, the AGES cohorts, that higher cardiovascular health and midlife uh, is associated with lower risk of dementia and act- uh, cutting it down by about uh, half. And again, it has the same limitation of you know, not following people uh, long enough and sometimes having lack of autopsy for a confirmation of uh, diagnosis. And this is a problem we have with Alzheimer's where Alzheimer's has kind of become this garbage term. And sometimes we don't really know that we're talking about Alzheimer's. We're just assuming it is because you have to prove it uh, with autopsy. What we end up finding in terms of the most common dementias is that vascular dementia and Alzheimer's are going to be the most common ones. A lot of people have a mix of both. But when you talk about the mix or each in isolation, they're going to account for most dementias in the world. And things like Lewy body, things like Parkinson's, which will develop dementia later in life, genetic Parkinson's syndromes. But in terms of your biggest bang for your buck for producing dementia risk, it's you're definitely targeting uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Is there any pathologic evidence of beta tau protein reduction postmortem with a plant-based diet? Or 
is it possible largely we're seeing the effects of the vascular implications of a plant-based diet, right? I mean, if 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 the vast majority of dementias are being caused by, you know, vascular disease, then it would stand to reason that vas- good vascular risk factors as same for cardiovascular health would would apply. But is there any unique data like that we actually know that that plant-based diets in known Alzheimer's disease actually cause any plaque regression or anything? Probably not, but I figured I'd ask. No, that's a great point. And I actually had that in my notes, but then I later removed it just because it wasn't like very robust data, like some of the other stuff I had. But you would think that, oh, well, if you're just causing little micro infarcts, it's leading to vascular dementia. That's making people demented. That's the connection. But um, aside from vascular dementia, there is uh, evidence that amyloid plaque gets reduced uh, with lifestyle interventions, not only um, eating healthier, but then also exercising, um, having uh, good connections with other people, all the lifestyle pillars that we'll talk about um, with patients. So it does seem to influence the amyloid plaque burden. But there's also an interaction between what we're calling Alzheimer's due to amyloid plaque and then production of amyloid plaque through other mechanisms and where people will predominantly have a clinical picture and an autopsy picture of vascular dementia, you'll still find that amyloid plaque. So it's not something that's unique to Alzheimer's. And that's why where I'm, I'm saying it's kind of, you know, what, what we used to think of Alzheimer's and what we think of Alzheimer's now, it's not as clear cut. It's more of a spectrum. I love that. And I love that you're talking about that it is hard to diagnose Alzheimer's specifically without an autopsy. And I get exactly what you're saying all the time where I'm, I'm internal medicine. So patients come in saying, you know, my father, grandfather, whatever was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I want you to tell me if I'm going to get it. And they don't ask for what they can do to prevent it. They right. just want to know if they have that gene. So we go into the discussion about, you know, a lot of it, we don't know exactly the gene for it's complicated. There's a lot of different things and I'm not going to recommend a gene test, but I will recommend that you switch your diet. And that's not always what they want to hear. They want to know, absolutely, am I going to get this? And the answer is just much more nuanced. Even if you have that gene, your best bet of preventing it or delaying it is to do the things that we're talking about. Eat a plant-forward diet, move more, don't drink alcohol, and don't smoke. So I love that you bring it up, that it's complicated and that it's often nuanced. It's not either Alzheimer's or vascular dementia. Often it's a spectrum and you have dementia because of potentially you've got some plaque and some vascular dementia. And it doesn't matter because the treatments are very similar. You should be on a more plant-forward diet and you should exercise more and quit drinking and smoking and all that. Absolutely. Um, and you know when, I'll, when patients ask me those questions, I'll tell them when we're talking about your genetic risk for Alzheimer's, the people who have Alzheimer's, they're heritable in their family. And where someone has it and then you're absolutely going to get it, or you're like almost certainly going to get it, that's 1% of Alzheimer's. 1%. Well, you're going to have the gene and you're going to pass it on to your kids and you're all going to get Alzheimer's and your lifestyle is going to have little to no impact. That's extremely rare. For everyone else, it is a spectrum and you certainly have influence over your, your fate through your diet and through your lifestyle. Um, and then looking at more data about this, focusing more on lifestyle specific, or on diet specifically, uh, there's a prospective cohort of 72,000 patients where they looked at the effect of ultra-processed food. The consumption was associated with a 50% increased risk of dementia uh, overall, but then a twofold risk of vascular dementia specifically. And when they looked at the lowest quartile, 
and fully adjusted. That was when they looked at the lowest quartile and fully adjusted models. But even a 10% increase in the percentage of ultra-processed food in your diet was associated with a 25% increase of uh, both dementia overall and vascular dementia. And when they looked at Alzheimer's specifically to Tracy's point, there was a 14% risk higher uh, for Alzheimer's uh, specifically, but that was borderline significance and it was limited by, uh, by the number of patients. Um, so what the authors came up with a recommendation was, or you know, kind of as a, as a take home was replacing 10% of ultra processed foods in your diet with an equivalent portion of unprocessed or minimally processed food was associated with a 19% lower risk of overall dementia. This data was reproduced, or the, these patterns were reproduced in a 1993 study from Loma Linda University, where they found the incidence of dementia intake of uh, animal products uh, in 3,000 people. They found that eating red meat or fish or chicken will increase the risk of dementia uh, twice compared to vegetarians, so not even vegans. Um, and then the Chicago Health and Aging Project of about 2,500 patients found that higher saturated fat and trans fat uh, and your diet increased the risk of Alzheimer's, specifically over six years. And then this was reproduced in the Women's Health Study at Harvard with a study with Kaiser and another one out of Columbia. So we're, we're seeing it out of multiple institutions. And it's all about these, these patterns of diets. You know, you don't have to go vegan specifically, but have less processed food, have more whole foods, have more plant diets, and you're going to be on the right path regardless of what kind of dementia you're um, concerned about, whether it's Alzheimer's, uh, vascular, or a mix of both. I love that. And I actually really liked the alternate healthy eating index, which was in a couple of the articles you referenced. I was usually, I usually talk about the the healthful plant-based dietary index, but I really liked this one too. Um, and it focuses on like, you get extra points for grains, you get extra points for nuts and legumes, you get negative points for alcohol and you get negative mm-hmm. points for red and processed meat. And I only bring it up because I keep sort of harping on just what you said. We're all vegan, but you don't have to go a hundred percent vegan to get these benefits. And some of the biggest bang for your buck can be by increasing those foods that we all need more of because we're so fiber deficient. So increasing your whole grains and increasing your legumes is almost as important as getting rid of that junk. And now the ultra processed stuff, I did love that study too. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. that stuff we need to, to cut out. That should be a never or almost never food. But we really need to focus on getting more of the, the whole food plant-based stuff too, the whole grains and legumes particularly. And then nuts and seeds are important too. I think we all know that it's not hard to be an ultra-processed junk food vegan. And so that's not necessarily what we mean when we say plant-based. It doesn't mean Oreos and, you know, impossible burgers at every meal. I mean, and that's fine once in a while, the same way for other folks, it might be fine once in a while to indulge. But we need to be aware as well that you can certainly eat a ton of garbage on a supposedly plant-based diet and still be getting a lot of the sugar and the processed crap that you probably shouldn't be eating. So we talked about a lot of correlational data, but what about actually putting these dietary interventions into practice? So there's an ongoing study called FINGER following uh, 1,260 older adults who have average or slightly below average baseline cognitive performance. They put them on plant-based diets, high in omega-3s, but along with other uh, lifestyle interventions like regular aerobic and resistance exercise and heavily uh, managing their vascular risk profile like blood pressure and, and lipids. And for the control group, they basically just told them eat healthy and exercise without actually providing anything specifically. And at least two years into the study, they're finding that the intervention group has a 25% increased cognitive performance score compared to the control group. So 
you know, it doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking about a disease that basically has no disease modifying therapy, that's huge. So that's one, one uh, dietary intervention. There's also the Sprint Mind uh, diet, uh, which has been found to uh, cut the risk of dementia or uh, mild cognitive impairment by about 53% compared to control groups. And that's over 4.5 years. So you don't have to wait till you're in your 80s, 90s. It's, you know, it, it has effects uh, earlier on. And even people who had, you know, to your point about not necessarily being perfect and not being totally vegan, even people who had moderate adherence cut their risk by 35%. And that was over eight years. I'm just going to wrap up with some guideline recommendations. So what the Alzheimer's Association uh, recommends specifically are the DASH diet, so like a low-salt diet, but then also a Mediterranean diet uh, for reducing uh, your Alzheimer's uh, risk. And, you know, the data behind Mediterranean is, uh, at least what I found, is the hazard ratio for a high-adherence diet score and risk of dementia was 0.6, which was statistically significant and had a narrow confidence interval of 0.42 to 0.87. And then when you divide these Mediterranean diet uh, people into tertiles, the highest tertile had a 28% uh, lower risk. So, you know, still, you know, pretty good, not as good as a more plant-forward and plant-heavy diet. And then there is also a meta-analysis I found of 22 trials on the Mediterranean diet, and they found that a high adherence to Mediterranean diet uh, was consistently associated with a risk of stroke and Alzheimer's, and both were statistically significant. For stroke, it was a a relative risk of 0.7, and for Alzheimer's, it was uh, 0.9. And then a quick point about fish oil and cognitive decline, there's been no benefits from supplementing and randomized controlled trials by giving people fish oil, just FYI. And so, you know, just to wrap up, when we're talking about dementia, I think we need to reframe dementia as brain failure, regardless of the underlying cause. If you don't have enough functioning tissue for that organ to function properly, you're going to have organ failure. And that's what ends up happening with, um, with dementia. But, you know, unlike heart failure, the, the organ doesn't kill you um, directly. With dementia, you end up having aspiration pneumonia, or you become septic. And that's what ultimately leads to death in a lot of people. You know, just talking about it as like, we want to prevent brain failure. So we want to keep your brain healthy. And so, you know, just to reiterate, reiterate the takeaway with dementia, anywhere, you know, from 20 to 40% of your dementia risk, whether you're talking globally or in the US, it can be prevented through diet and lifestyle uh, risk factors. The data is limited by interventions started in midlife, so it's probably undercutting what uh, the impact of those interventions uh, are. And you know, to all the physicians out there, neurologists or otherwise, when you get an MRI or CT on someone and you see this you know, quote-unquote white matter disease, don't ignore it. You know, Think about if you were to find an incidental infarct on someone's CT in their kidney or their bowels, we would definitely work that up and we would definitely address that, right? There would be testing and interventions for that, but we'll often see, oh, you've got white matter disease. People have this. Like, yes, statistically it's common, but it doesn't mean we should just ignore it. It's, it's got to be addressed because ultimately this will lead to cognitive impairment down the road and clinical stroke if these white matter lesions do represent microinfarcts. Now we know what to tell all the people doing Wordle and buying all the crossword puzzles to keep their brains healthy. <laughs> Another thing that they can yeah. do in addition to that. Absolutely. Um, and this is a good segue into stroke. And I, it, you know, for stroke, so just to go over the definition of stroke, it's technically any brain injury that's due to a vascular cause. So technically a subdural or a ruptured AVM is a kind of stroke. But of course, when we're talking about stroke, most of the time we're talking about ischemic stroke, which represents approximately 60% of strokes, whereas hemorrhagics are 30% and then subarachs are 10%. 
And my key takeaway for stroke, when you're talking about ischemic and hemorrhagic, is that it's almost completely preventable. You know, unlike Alzheimer's, unlike uh, when we're talking about dementia, about 90% of the attributable risk globally for stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic combined, is due to 10 risk factors. So that means 90% of the strokes that we're seeing in the hospital, we should not be seeing because they're preventable. And that's huge. And so I don't really have much that I want to say about stroke because I think it's so black and white. You know, the genetic causes for strokes and when people have traumatic arterial dissections, that's a minority and they're the exception to the rule. Most of the strokes are preventable. That's just incredible. Right? It's, it's you know, you, you know that smoking and poor diet are bad for you for your stroke and heart attack risk, but people don't really uh, talk about the attributable risk and how much of it is preventable. Um, and in terms of citing data, I think the most robust things we have uh, globally on uh, diet are one from the Interstroke study. So that's a 2010 study, uh, case control study of 22 countries comparing uh, 3,000 people with recent stroke uh, versus uh, 3,000 controls with no stroke. And they looked at their risk factor profile. And that's where that 90% first came from. Uh, and so those risk factors are hypertension, smoking, waist to hip ratio, uh, diet risk score, uh, regular physical, physical activity, diabetes, alcohol, stress, depression, cardiac causes, and then your apolipoprotein uh, ratio. And the hazard ratios for all those risk factors were uh, between one and two with tight confidence intervals. But the biggest ones um, in terms of attributable risk were hypertension, current smoking, waist to hip ratio, alcohol, diabetes, and cardiac uh, in that order. And of those 10 risk factors, unlike when we talked about those uh, 12 risk factors in Alzheimer's, six of the 10 in this stroke study are diet-related. And then this data was reproduced, and they pretty much found the same thing in a recent 2022 paper from the World Stroke Organization. They have something called the Global Stroke Fact Sheet. And they found 10 risk factors, which you know were basically the same ones and reproduced so, the same data. And when they sort of broke it down that 30% of strokes are really from diet, and then another 23% are from BMI, and 20% are from high glucose, and 10% from high LDL, which are all things that we could change or fix with a plant-based diet. So just a huge number of strokes, not only are they attributed to lifestyle factors, but really could be modified and fixed with a plant-based diet. Absolutely. Um, and getting into current recommendations, the last stroke prevention guidelines from the American Heart slash American Stroke Association were in 2021. And what they specifically recommend is the Mediterranean diet with a class 2A level BR recommendations that's considered moderate level uh, of evidence. But outside of AHA guidelines, the specific diets that have been studied have been found to reduce your stroke risk are the DASH diet, the Mediterranean, and the Nordic diet. And looking at these diets more granularly, you know, aside from low salt and the DASH diet, all these other diets, the common themes are more whole foods and more plants. You know, my takeaway from stroke is most stroke is preventable through preventing the components of metabolic syndrome. So basically the same stuff that causes heart attacks for the most part. And these things are in turn due to diet. And that's why I'll spend so much time with my patients talking about uh, diet I'll quote the numbers. I'll see what their specific uh, individual barriers are for having a healthier diet. And you know, the other attorneys would make fun of me because I would spend my entire on a clinic session counseling people on lifestyle because you know we took care of all the workup in the hospital, and now it's just like, hey, you taking your meds? Okay, great. 
We know your stroke mechanism. We did all the workup. Let's talk about how we can actually reduce your risk of having another one and keep you out of the hospital and also reduce the amount of medicines that you need to be on. Even though it's so preventable, our current medical guidelines and healthcare systems don't really set people up for success. And that's why I'm working with the American Academy of Neurology to just kind of facilitate that for, for our patients. I think that's so important. Thank you for doing that. Hey, I feel like so many people, you know, they show up in my ER, they've just been discharged from the hospital, they're on 17 new medications, none of which they quite understand. And they don't really have any sense of an end game for these, right? Like, and unless the patient asks, like, do I take this for the rest of my life? Like, you know, and try to help them say, you know what, maybe you don't have to. Uh, maybe there's a way you could be on maybe eight meds instead of 16. Um, and we can start there and telling people that, you know, the medications aren't the end game. They're a bridge to the lifestyle changes that will keep them healthy, hopefully. Um, obviously, you know, within within reason, some people don't have a choice. But um, to the best of your ability, some of those meds can can be decreased or taken off. Yeah. And people will feel so defeated when they come in with their or their diagnosed with stroke and, and you're like, here's all the meds you have to be on. And so I'll tell them in the beginning, hey, the aspirin is going to be a forever medicine. And people don't really get bothered by that for the most part because they kind of see aspirin as a vitamin. It's like preventative. But I'm like, yeah, your blood pressure medicine, your diabetes medicine, your cholesterol medicine, these don't have to be forever medicines. We're going to work to actually get you down on these medicines and hopefully off. It's not a guarantee, but we're going to work on it. And you're not going to just be on these meds forever. So that's a great point. Wow. Thank you so much for all of this information. We're really excited to share this with our listeners and even more excited that this is just part one of two neurology episodes. In our next episode, you'll be joining us to share more about plant-based nutrition and what it means for patients who have Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. We're really looking forward to it. This is Tracy and Eden signing off. Less meat means less disease. Go have a happy plant-based day.